Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. All right, if you like watching TV crime shows with lots of twists and turns and courtroom shockers, you're in the right place today because today's case centers on lies, lies, and more lies. Nowadays, it is safe to say social media is synonymous with lies. We have all been lied to by someone we met online. Maybe someone's profile picture is a reflection of them in their skinnier days, or friends uses a little too much Photoshop on their Instagram pictures. Or maybe someone's Facebook page makes them look like wealthy socialites, when in reality, they are living paycheck to paycheck. But these are little white lies compared to those a woman named Samantha told her boyfriend, Navy sailor Cooper Jackson. Her lies left one Marine dead and one sailor shaking his head in court when he met his girlfriend for the first time. Join me today as I discuss the case against Navy Petty Officer Cooper Jackson. Now, let's dig in. My main sources for today's case came from an Oxygen special titled A Lie to Die For, a 48 Hours episode titled Deadly Lies, and the U.S. Navy Marine Corps Court of Criminal Appeals 2007 opinion. Our story begins in January of 2006 in Virginia Beach at Dam Neck Naval Base. 23-year-old Marine Corporal Justin Jake Hoff was on temporary duty in Virginia attending intelligence training Now, this is a specialized training where they only send the best and the brightest. And this is something that he chose to do to progress in his career in the Marines. But he was nearly 3,000 miles away from his wife, Becca. And she was three months pregnant and she was living back home near Camp Pendleton in California. Justin came from a lineage of military men. His grandfather was a merchant Marine in World War II. His father served in the Air Force and he wanted to be the first Marine in the family. Justin first deployed in early 2003 in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. After this deployment, he was only home a month before deploying again. On January 2, 2006, Justin's intel instructors, they became concerned when he failed to show up to class. And to be honest, it was the new year, so it's, you know, it's likely that his leadership probably thought he was a knucklehead Marine, had a little bit too much fun over the New Year's weekend. But, you know, it's protocol to send someone out to do a welfare check. They did a dorm check and Justin wasn't there. They got a weird feeling though because the dorm room looked like it was left by someone who left quickly. They planned to return. There was a half-eaten pizza in the kitchen. His winter coat was in the closet in the middle of an East Coast winter. There was loose money laying around and it looked like Justin just vanished. Where could he be? Was he AWOL? Was he hurt? Or something else? You know, he wasn't the type to just disappear. So investigators, they started to ask questions. The military is a tight-knit community. You know, sometimes we know too much about our buddies or our classmates because we live in close proximity. It's like being in college, especially when you're on temporary duty. You're eating out almost on a daily basis, working out with your friends, or even just working on group assignments. Everyone in his class is puzzled. The intel instructor, they asked the class if they knew anything about Justin's whereabouts. And we true crime army folks, we know that rule number two is always speak up. You could save a life. 
and private first class William Richard followed this rule. And he remembered two things that happened before Justin went missing. First, Richard was in the lobby of the barracks when a man walked in and began asking questions about a guy named Huff. Richard asked the guy, hey, are you looking for Marine Huff? The man said, yes. Richard told him, hey, it's the holidays, not sure when he's going to be back. And the guy just like shuffled around and left. Richard thought this was odd, but he watched the man as he got into his vehicle and drove off. He was driving a blue pickup truck with a motorcycle tied down on the bed of the truck. And Richard also made a mental note of both the vehicle and what this guy was wearing. He was wearing a tool t-shirt, the band, and a black motorcycle jacket. Now, can I make Richard the first sergeant of our true crime army? Seriously, kudos to him for his keen eye, and you'll see why later. Second, after the weird conversation with the blue pickup truck guy, Richard had a weird conversation with Justin. Justin told him that over the holiday weekend, Navy and CIS, which are Navy investigators, they came to visit him in the middle of the night and they wanted information about an alleged rape that Justin might have information about. Justin thought it was weird because the NCIS agent was wearing like weird clothes. Usually NCIS agents will wear suits, but this guy, he didn't, you know, look like an NCIS agent. And also he couldn't provide NCIS identification. Justin was convinced that something was off, but he couldn't pinpoint it. And this is where it would have been beneficial for Justin to have told someone else, like maybe his instructors about this odd visit. I am by no means victim blaming here, but remember, it's okay to ask questions. And if something seems odd or off, it's okay to speak up. And I know that's really difficult in the military because of the different ranks. And sometimes people of lower ranks feel like they can't speak up. And that's not the case. Word eventually got around that NCIS agent was looking for a potential suspect driving a blue pickup truck with a motorcycle on the bed. At the same time, investigators realized they have video footage of the dorm rooms. They immediately obtain the tape and what they find on the tape is ominous. They see Justin leave his room casually with a t-shirt, no jacket, no nothing, and he leaves on January 2nd around three in the morning. But as they continue to watch and watch and watch, they never see him return to his room. You can actually watch this video footage on that oxygen special, A Lie to Die For, and I recommend that everybody go and watch it. It's pretty fascinating. The investigators begin to get antsy as they feel like they're not getting much information. And I can only imagine the desperation in a case where you have a missing person and every second matters. And every second where you don't obtain helpful information, is another second where the person could be experiencing pain or injury. And of course, in your mind, I'm assuming that you're always thinking worst case scenario. They decide to follow up on the lead about this NCIS agent that mysteriously visited Justin a few nights before he went missing. They begin by searching Justin's name in their database and they wanna see, okay, is he a subject in any of the investigations that we have? They do a search, nothing. Then they're like, okay, maybe he's a witness. And so they search to see if he's listed as a witness in another case. Nothing. So who visited Justin that night? A group of Marines are going about their day on the military installation when they spot the suspicious blue truck with a motorcycle tied on the bed. And the group of Marines walk up to the truck and they start pounding on the window until the driver opens it up. And then the Marines force this person to give them his identification. 
they take down the man's information and his name is Petty Officer Cooper Jackson. Investigators now have a name. And like I said, these Marines are my heroes. Happy birthday, Marine Corps. I see you. NCIS looked up Cooper Jackson, and he's also on duty at Damneck. But he and Justin, they live in different dorms on opposite sides of base and have no classes together. Before they pay him a visit, though, they pull the video of his barracks on the night in question. And eerily, he is seen leaving his dorm room wearing a suit, carrying various duffel bags around the same time that Justin was seen leaving his room that night except Cooper returned hours later in the morning and Justin was never seen again. Hi everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru, Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy. And it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. NCIS paid Cooper a visit. And when they knock on the door, Cooper is relieved. <gasps> oh, thank God that you guys are here. Let me report how I was assaulted by a group of Marines while I was in my car. So NCIS, they're excited that he is so welcoming. You know, this should be an easy interview. But he was adamant he never met Justin. When questioned about his favorite band, he stated Tool. NCIS did a search of his room and they found a Tool t-shirt and a black biker jacket matching the description that Richard had given. When confronted by the video footage of him leaving his dorm on the night of the disappearance, he basically realized that he needed to start talking. And he said, let me tell you a story. Cooper was more concerned explaining away his initial visit to Justin's barracks when he was in the lobby, you know, when Richard saw him. Cooper says earlier that day, he was out drinking and he had an interaction with a drunk Justin at a bar. Justin left his phone on the bar table and Cooper was just trying to return the phone. When asked why he didn't just give the phone to Richard while he was in the lobby, he minimized it by saying he didn't trust him and he eventually just threw the phone away. 
And now that doesn't really make sense because if you would go out of your way to hunt someone down at their dorm or at the barracks, why wouldn't you just leave it somewhere instead of throwing it in the trash? If that was what you were going to do, you should have just left it at the bar. NCIS investigator William L. Fine didn't believe his story, and he began to ask Cooper about his girlfriend. Does he have one? Of course. Her name was Samantha Dunlap, and she was a college student at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. She came from a pretty wealthy family in Texas, and she was smoking hot. Petite blonde with blue eyes. Here's a picture of her. When NCIS asked to see more pictures, Cooper told him, I can't show you anymore because they're all nudes. NCIS, though, they noted how he lit up when talking about his girlfriend, Samantha. One keen-eyed investigator, they saw something that caught his eye. A sheriff deputy's business card laying around Cooper's room. This was odd because sheriff's deputies, they don't give away their cards like candy. So there had to be an explanation for this business card. NCIS paid the sheriff's deputy a visit and they learned that Cooper went to them twice. Once because he was trying to get Samantha's address and the second time to report a sexual assault that had been committed on Samantha. The police were stumped, like, what is this guy up to? After he went asking for Samantha's contact information, the deputy called the young lady and she begged them not to give Cooper her address. Speaking to Samantha rose to the top of the NCIS to-do list. Her interactions with Cooper seemed off. So the investigators ran phone records and they were chasing their tail looking for this petite blonde who was 5'1 and very thin. They searched various places in North Carolina and they finally stumble upon Samantha. When they walk into a hotel, they show the hotel clerk a phone number and they ask, hey, do you know whose phone number this is? And that's when the hotel clerk says, uh, that's my number. The police, they're extremely surprised, not because they thought they'd never find her, but they're surprised because she looks nothing like the picture that Jackson showed them. This woman was 5'2", brunette, and weighed close to 300 pounds. Cooper had been catfished, and that is when the police realized that Cooper had never actually met Samantha in person. Samantha told a terrifying story of catfishing that she often played with Marines and sailors who lived in the barracks. She began this sick, twisted, yet mostly harmless game when she was 15 years old. She didn't use the internet to catfish men. She had a base phone book and she discovered which dormitory phone numbers had young men living there. She would dial random numbers for the base and then she would pretend to be looking for a friend. She again would call the following day until finally her and the person who answered the phone, they began to chat. Samantha was a great conversationalist. By happenstance, in November of 2005, Cooper Jackson was her victim. He answered the call and within days after Samantha called over and over again, they began texting, talking and sending pictures. They interacted all the time and Samantha and Cooper exchanged over 6,000 total contacts in the time frame from November 05 through January of 06. This may seem like a lot to some, or it may seem like a little, you know, but for those that enjoy unlimited talk and text, remember back in 2005 and 2006, there was a cap on text messages unless you were like independently wealthy. When I was in college, I was on the cheap like 300 message plan. So I told my friends, you better not text me. You better call. But I know that times have changed. Since Cooper and Samantha began dating, Cooper had made various attempts to meet her. But something always came up. Samantha knew this game. 
Cooper was getting too attached. So she tried various ways to shake the lovesick puppy because she had no intention of meeting him, but he wasn't getting the point. Cooper did a few things that were red flags. First, he bought Samantha a plane ticket to visit. And when she didn't show up, he waited at the airport for 13 hours. On another occasion, he hunted down her address that he found like online or somehow he found her address. He shows up at that address. He calls her from outside. She tells him, hey, that's not my house. That's my friend's house and you should leave because I'm not there. At that point, Cooper suspected something was wrong. And he says, quote, I better not find out you're heavy set." end quote. Really? Who says that, Cooper? Makes you wonder if he actually wanted to meet her or if he wanted to maybe hurt her for lying to him. By early December, it seems like both Cooper and Samantha, they're over each other. After all of the failed attempts to meet up, Cooper calls it quits. Samantha was relieved and in an effort to ensure it was like done done, she tells him that it's probably for the best that they broke up because she had recently gotten really, really drunk and she had sex with a guy at a party. Cooper didn't want to believe that his then girlfriend would betray him. So he assured her, you have been raped. Over the following days, Samantha assures Cooper that she wasn't raped, but he hassles her and hassles her until she finally gave in and said, okay, okay, fine. I was raped. Cooper knew he had to avenge his girlfriend's rape. So he asked for a physical description of the perpetrator and sick, demented Samantha provides a description. She says, it was a Marine. He was roughly 6'4", and he was very good looking. Cooper then let his imagination take off and bad things happened. After the investigators interview Samantha, the investigators feel like, okay, we have enough information. By this point, they have probable cause. They have the video footage of both Cooper and Justin leaving their dorm rooms at the same time before Justin went missing. They have the tool t-shirt, they have the black biker jacket, and they have the matching blue truck with the motorcycle. At first, Cooper denied any involvement in Justin's disappearance. But when confronted with the overwhelming evidence against him, Cooper spilled the beans and he told the investigators a twisted tale. Cooper said that he needed to avenge Samantha's rape. And with a general description of the assailant, he was always on the lookout for a potential suspect. So one day while he's at the dining facility, Cooper saw a Marine matching the description that Samantha gave. Tall, handsome Marine. And Cooper stared this man down and the man stared back at him. Can you just imagine this picture? One sailor giving a Marine dirty looks in the dining facility. To a reasonable person, this seems harmless. It probably happens on a daily basis at any military installation. That Marine he was having a stare down with was Justin Huff. Cooper took a glance at Justin's uniform tape and saw the name Huff, but it was actually Huff. When Justin looked at Cooper just a little too long, this is when Cooper convinced himself that this was the man who raped his girlfriend. Cooper quickly called Samantha and asked her if Huff sounded familiar, like, you know, one of the guys who raped her. Samantha originally said no, but then after sufficient harassment from Cooper, she finally agreed that Huff may have been one of the guys who held her down. So if everyone's as confused as I am, let's be confused together because originally it was consensual sex with one guy, but now it's a gang rape. This girl is just sick. And if you're on the edge of your seat, you just wait until you hear what happened next. One day, Cooper stopped Justin near the barracks and presented himself as an NCIS agent. 
and he began to question him about a rape. Justin was skeptical about this guy being NCIS, but he answered his questions and said he knew nothing about a rape, and then they parted ways. Somehow, Cooper obtained Justin's phone number, and on December 31st, he spoke with Justin again. Again, Justin denied any involvement. It was New Year's Eve, so Cooper decided to drink a little. As he drank, he thought maybe Justin wasn't the rapist. But the more and more he thought about it, the more he worked himself up. And he thought, you know what? Justin is lying to me. He raped my girlfriend. But then, you know, Cooper was torn. Maybe he got the wrong guy. But he went back and forth and back and forth until he finally convinced himself that Justin was lying. On New Year's Day, Cooper called Justin again, pretending to be an NCIS agent. He told him that he needed to bring him down to the office for formal questioning. And Justin, being the good Marine and not wanting to disappoint, agreed to meet Cooper. And that is when we see him leaving his dorm room at three in the morning. Now, this is where another true crime army rule comes in. Drum roll, please. It's okay to trust but verify. I know people hate that saying, you know, trust but verify. People hate that saying. But for my people who love true crime everything, you know that it's a necessary evil. And I think Justin was fearful of being caught up in a sex assault scandal and he wanted to clear his name. And his friends say on the documentaries, Justin probably just wanted to figure out what happened to this rape victim. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. Justin got into Cooper's truck. During the drive, Cooper pretended to receive a phone call. And during this fake call, Cooper was informed that Samantha was at a hospital in North Carolina and NCIS needed to bring Justin in for identification. Cooper immediately put Justin in handcuffs, and I'm assuming he not only used this lie to get Justin into handcuffs, but probably also so that Justin wouldn't be alarmed when they left the military installation. As Cooper continued to drive, Justin begged Cooper. He tried to convince him that he had the wrong guy. He wasn't involved in any rape. In fact, Justin was a happily married newlywed and his wife was expecting their first baby. Please, I would never commit a rape, he pleaded. At this point, Cooper was getting uneasy and he began to feel like, oh my gosh, I got the wrong guy. 
And after driving nearly an hour, he decided to stop to take off the handcuffs. They step out of the car, but Cooper didn't remove the handcuffs. Instead, he put Justin on his knees and he confessed he wasn't an NCIS agent. He told them that he was Samantha's boyfriend and he wanted answers. Justin was so confused. Why was this happening to him? In a video recording by investigators, Cooper said, quote, And I asked him for the truth and any involvement that he had with Samantha. I asked him to swear on his life and on everything that he held dear to his life, that he meant the truth and he said he did. I don't think I ever truly planned to let him go. I wanted to, but I brought my knife. And then he is seen signaling that he slit his throat. And he says, and I looked trying to discover a spot that I could drag his body to, end quote. Sadly, Cooper acknowledged that he got the wrong guy, but in his mind, he had already done so much bad that he thought he had to kill Justin to make it all better. It just doesn't make sense how insane that thought process is. As I research these murder cases, this analysis seems to go through a lot of murderers' minds. They commit a crime, a lesser crime than murder, right? Because let's just agree that murder is the worst crime that anybody could commit. Child sex crimes are, are, are up there too, but they commit a lesser crime and they feel that they need to murder this person to cover it up. And it, it doesn't make sense. And, and I guess that's the mind of a murderer. Cooper then attempts to dispose of Justin's body by pouring gasoline on him, setting him on fire, and then burying his body. After his confession, he showed NCIS where Justin's body was, and he even agreed to do a recorded reenactment of how he committed the murder. Navy divers found a switchblade knife, a shovel, and handcuffs in the waters of Virginia Beach, which all tied back to Cooper. 11 days after Justin went missing, his family was notified of Justin's fate. Cooper was charged by the military with premeditated murder, kidnapping, impersonating an NCIS agent, and wrongfully impeding an investigation. Initially, the prosecutors were seeking the death penalty, but Cooper pled guilty to all charges in exchange for removing the death penalty from the table. The craziest part in this case was during sentencing, when Samantha was called to testify. Up until that point, Cooper had never seen the woman he killed for. But when he saw her in court that day, and she was not the petite blonde that he was in love with, one of the agents stated it was as if Cooper sank on the inside. When Samantha testified, she appeared to feel regret. Sadly, nothing Samantha did was illegal. She just catfished the wrong person, and Justin was just a victim of Samantha and Cooper's sad and twisted existence. For those of you wondering, Samantha is not her real name. Her real name is Ashley Elrod. During sentencing, everyone raved about Justin. His friends described him as a solid rock, very dependable. One of his previous supervisors even said that he was in the top 10%. And of his friends who were interviewed during the documentary, all of them had watery eyes and they just were so, so sad to have lost such an amazing friend. Justin's son was born in June, the year he was murdered. Jake's mother, Teresa Huff, testified, quote, My grandson was robbed of father. And when my grandson asked, where is my daddy? We will have to tell him. Your daddy was kidnapped and killed in the U.S. after serving two tours of duty in Iraq by a fellow soldier, end quote. 
It must be so hard for a parent to have to deal with losing a child in combat, but even harder when the child is murdered in the U.S. by one of their own military members. Justin's wife, Becca, she testified that her world was completely shattered when her husband was murdered. And after her son was born, she contemplated ending her life, but she knew she couldn't leave her son parentless. She admitted her outlook on life will never be the same. Cooper's defense counsel was Don Macquarie, the same man who defended the actions of one of the men in the true crime story behind the movie, A Few Good Men. And don't worry, I plan to cover that case in a later episode. Macquarie spoke to Oxygen and 48 Hours about this case. And when asked how he thought his client felt when he saw the real Samantha, he said Cooper probably thought, quote, I killed somebody over the girl that it's not the girl of my dreams, end quote. At trial, Cooper testified and said, quote, I'd broken several laws and I had a missing Marine with me. Quite frankly, I was scared of the consequences of what would happen, of being caught more so than I was of the consequences of taking a life. I had the handcuff keys in one hand and my knife in the other hand, trying to decide if I would let him go or if I would take his life. I didn't make the ultimate decision until after the knife was drawn, In my mind, I guess they symbolized my choice to let him go or not let him go, end quote. During the sentencing portion of the case, Cooper's mother testified, and as she looked over at Justin's family, she said, quote, if I could only turn back the hands of time, do something different, say something different, end quote. Cooper was sentenced by a general court martial made up of a mixed jury of officer and enlisted members, and he received life in prison without the possibility of parole. Cooper's stepfather was interviewed in the Oxygen documentary, and he made an interesting comment. Cooper told his stepfather once that he wanted to become a Navy SEAL, quote, so that he could kill people, end quote. This tends to prove that sadly, Cooper was just a sad, sad man. Ashley Elrod ruined the lives of two men, Clearly, but for her sad existence, maybe Justin would still be with us today. But let's not excuse the biggest criminal of all, the man that fell for her lies. And even after discovering that he had the wrong man, chose murder over doing the right thing. Cooper's defense attorney, Don McCory, he went on to write a fictional book based on the facts of this case. And it is called Conduct Unbecoming. The book was published in 2017. After Justin's remains were recovered and put to rest, the Marines held a final roll call. And if you don't know what a final roll call is, it's the saddest thing that you could ever hear or see. Funerals are already sad, but seeing a roll call will melt even the coldest of hearts. A Marine will start calling names of unit members. As each name is read, each Marine will state their presence. The name of the deceased will be called three times, each response filled with heavy silence. After the third call, Taps begins to play. There is no way to end this story on a happy note. 
But I do want to end this episode with giving you information about an organization I had never heard about until I started doing research for this case. When a service member dies, we often do a big hurrah and a last goodbye for the service member. But once everything is over and the dust has settled, there are people left to grieve for the rest of their lives. And oftentimes that involves widows. I found an organization called American Widow Project. Their mission is to provide vital support to military widows. And these programs, they're made to unify, educate, empower, and to assist these widows in rebuilding their lives in the face of tragedy. And I bring up this organization because I found a story written by Paloma Esquival, and she describes how the creator of the Widows Project, Taryn Davis, She reached out to Becca after Taryn heard about Justin's brutal murder. And I was extremely moved by this act of love and compassion. And I want to make a call to action. If you are looking for a way to empower military widows and assist in rebuilding their lives after tragedy, you might consider donating any amount to that organization. And you can find more information about The Widows Project at www.americanwidowproject.org. And when you're ready to donate, just click donate. Well, True Crime Army, thanks for listening. The lesson from this story is twofold. One, keep your eyes peeled. There are crazies everywhere. And two, it's okay to trust but verify. Doesn't matter what your rank is. Doesn't doesn't matter who you are. I mean, this is not just a military podcast. It's a true crime podcast that brings real stories about real people, and it can happen to anyone. So trust, but verify. It has been a few weeks since I started this podcast, and I am interested in your thoughts. Please take a second to leave a review. I read every single review, and I use it to make this series better for you. If you want to reach out, please do so on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast, or on Twitter at Military Murder, or by email at MilitaryMurderPodcast at gmail.com. The music in this podcast was created by TIOPS, and the TAPS rendition that I played was by Gunnery Sergeant Amy McCabe of the Marine Corps band, The President's Own. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a great week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Let's work on another podcast.